Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, why are human babies so immature? It turns out the seeming weakness of a long childhood, for humans and other species, is its major benefit. A slow growth period, thanks in part to the grandmothers of the world, provides time to learn, observe, adapt, think abstractly, and play, all crucial activities for advanced beings. Alison Gopnik is a professor of psychology and philosophy at UC Berkeley, where she directs the Gopnik Cognitive Development Lab. Her new book is The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on October 3rd. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces Alison Gopnik. Dr. Alison Gopnik is a professor of psychology and an affiliated professor of philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of the monthly column, Mind and Matter, for the Wall Street Journal. She's a leader in the field of child learning and development, writing regularly about cognitive science and psychology for Science, The Times Literary Supplement, The New York Times Review, I'm sorry, New York Review of Books, The New York Times, Slate, and others. Uh, authoring over 100 scholarly articles, she has also written several best-selling books, including the be- uh, 2000, I'm sorry, The Scientist in the Crib, and I don't have the year for that, but it was before 2009, which is when she released The Philosophical Baby, which was the last occasion of her, uh, her, her an appearance at Town Hall. Her latest book, as I mentioned, is called The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. It's the subject of tonight's talk. Uh, I should also mention that she's not only a, a, a clinical expert on the subject, she herself has raised three children and reports three grandchildren. So with all of that, please join me in welcoming back Alison Gopnik. Thank you so much, and thank you all for coming out here in Seattle, which is one of my favorite favorite cities in the world. Um, So what I'm going to do is start out with something that might seem kind of controversial, which is to start out by saying a few words against parenting. Um, So a strange thing happened to parents and children uh, around 30 or 40 years ago, and it was called parenting. Um, Now, there have been parents, of course, and mothers and fathers and children, as we'll see, for as long as there have been been human beings. But the idea of parenting is actually relatively recent, and I think this New Yorker cartoon kind of sums up the picture that is the parenting picture. So... What do I mean when I'm talking about parenting? What is it about parenting that's different from just being a parent? Well, the picture is that there are a bunch of things that you can do, a bunch of expertise you can get or techniques that you can learn that you can apply to your child that will turn that child into a better child. Exactly what the better means isn't totally clear, but, you know, happier or smarter or more successful, although, again, happier, smarter, more successful than what isn't completely clear. Um, We sort of whisper than that other kid next door. Um, 
and that by making your child into a happier, a smarter, or more successful child, that will make that child into a happier, or smarter, or more successful, or generally better adult. That's kind of the picture that the word parenting conveys. And when I first started writing this book, um, the book was really about a whole lot of new science that it has come out in the past 15 years or so. Um, I'll give you a sample of that tonight, both in evolutionary biology and in psychology, that's really incredibly exciting in terms of the picture it gives us of the relation between parents and children. And at the same time, um, as Ware said, I became a grandmother, and I realized there was this enormous disconnect between the picture of parents and children and learning and development that comes out of the science and this incredibly pervasive parenting picture. And it's interesting, if you even look at the very word parenting, although there are a few examples of it, as with any uh, English word, um, and the word mother and father are as old as English itself, it, this is actually the Google engram for parenting. And you can see that it really only starts to show up in the 60s. And then somewhere around 1970, there was just this enormous exponential increase in the number of times that people talked about parenting maybe leveling off a little bit now, but it's still very high. So I was actually surprised to find that the very word itself was that recent. So it was really only at the end of the 20th century that suddenly this word parenting and this idea of parenting that comes with it um, actually emerged. And one way to think about parenting um, that, uh, that kind of inspired the title of the book was that it's a kind of picture in which a being a parent is a bit like being a carpenter. It's a matter of finding sort of the right material, and then if you only know enough, if you only have enough expertise, good enough techniques, you'll be able to shape that material into the right kind of chair. And if you're a carpenter, then control and expertise and knowledge, those are all exactly the things that you want to have. And what I argue in the book is, although that's a very good model for being a carpenter or for doing all sorts of useful work, it's a good model for being a writer or being a professor or being a CEO, it's not a good model for being a parent. And I think a better model for being a parent, a better metaphor, is to think about what you do when you're a gardener, at least if you're the kind of gardener that I am. And one thing that all gardeners know is nothing works out the way that they expected it to. Um, you work incredibly hard, you work, you sweat, you're up to your ears in manure a lot of the time, um, and nothing happens the way that you had wanted it to in the first place. But there is actually a profound reason for that, and the profound reason for that is that what you want to do when you garden is create an ecosystem. Um, you don't, most of the time, want to grow the biggest potato that you could possibly grow, or... Uh, have a hothouse where you control all the circumstances and end up with the largest orchids that you could possibly grow. Um, one of the things that we know is that that kind of cultivation is fragile. Those kinds of giant potatoes and perfect orchids don't last very well when things change. What you want to do when you garden, even when you make a farm, is to have a very dynamic group of different kinds of plants with different strengths and different weaknesses. And you want a rich enough soil in a protected environment in which all those different kinds of plants can thrive. And what you get when you get that kind of ecosystem is a system that's resilient, that's dynamic, that can deal with variability and change. And what I argue in the book is that the picture that science gives of being a parent 
is a picture that's much more like that, that the point of being a human parent is to allow diversity, possibility, difference, novelty, things that you don't expect to thrive. All right. Now, as I said, that argument really comes from two recent scientific uh, developments, two recent scientific sources. Um, one of them is uh, evolution. And one of the really interesting uh, things that's happened in people thinking about human evolution over the last little while is the emphasis on just how important and how striking and unusual um, our childhood is. So this is something that evolutionary biologists talk about as life history, our particular the way that our lives evolve. And one of the most distinctive things about human life history is this childhood. So if you look at our closest primate relatives, like the chimp, for example, chimps are actually producing as much food as they're consuming by the time they're seven years old. And even in uh, forager or hunter-gatherer societies, um, children aren't doing that until they're 15. So that's a big difference. By the way, just parenthetically, um, we used to say hunter-gatherer, now anthropologists say forager, because it turns out that the hunters actually don't do very much. Um, most of the calories actually come from, um, as we'll see in a minute, the old grandmothers digging out tubers in the backyard. Um, it, it, there's a bit of an anthropological mystery about why all the hunting. Um, and my own personal theory it's, is that it's because all the grandmothers got so fed up with all the senior males telling them how to dig the tubers that they said, you know, honey, a steak would be really nice. Why don't we go out and just leave me alone to dig the tubers and get us a nice mammoth steak for dinner. Um, in any case, even in those forager cultures, um, Children are dependent for a really, really, really long time. And that seems as if it's contradictory. I mean, why would we have children depend on us for so long? And if you think about our modern culture, my son is 27, and they are dependent on us for a long time. We're writing tuition checks and, and paying the rent. Um, why would that be? What a weird evolutionary piece of evolutionary design. Well, it turns out that if you look across many, many different kinds of animals, you see this really striking relationship between how long a childhood the animal has and how big a brain and how smart and flexible the animal is. And the kind of poster animals for this relationship are actually not even mammals, but birds. So this is a New Caledonian crow. Um, these are crows who live on an island off of New Zealand. I've actually collaborated and published some papers about these crows. These crows are amazing. They're smart, in some ways smarter than chimpanzees. And this is a crow who's learned how to bend a wire so that she can get, pull, up that, um, pull up that column and get the food that's inside. Uh, and on the other hand, and crows and ravens and rooks and all the animals in the corvid family are incredibly, incredibly smart animals. Um, on the other hand, our friend the domestic chicken and the animals in that family, turkeys and geese and so forth, are, are basically, with apologies for any chicken lovers in the audience, they're, they're basically as dumb as stumps. Um, uh, in Berkeley, you have to worry a little about the chicken lovers in the audience, probably in Seattle too. Um, uh, or, 
A better way of putting it is that they're beautifully intelligent when it comes to pecking for grain. And in fact, there's interesting recent work that shows that even newborn chicks and ducklings are really well adapted to peck for grain. Um, they're not very good at learning how to do anything new. And that's the big contrast between the chickens and the ducks and the geese of the world and the, uh, the crows of the world. Now, when you look at the ducks and the geese the, uh, and the chickens, the chickens are mature within a couple of weeks, a couple of months. These crows are fledglings for two years. So crows in general are fledglings for as long as a year. These New Caledonian crows are fledglings for as long as two years, which is a very long time in the life of, uh, in the life of a crow, in the life of a bird. Why this very long period of immaturity? And as we'll see, this relationship it, you, is one that you can find across the animal kingdom. Sort of look at birds, look at mammals. As we'll see in a minute, we'll, if you even look at uh, marsupials, you see this relationship. Um, how come? Why would you see this relationship between how long a period of immaturity you have and how smart you are, in particular smart in the sense of flexible and dependent on learning, and learning you are as an adult? Well, if you actually look at what these new Caledonian crows are doing in that two years when they're fledglings, you can get a pretty good idea. And basically, what they're doing is they're screwing up. Um, again, no analogies to 27-year-olds uh, uh, should be made here. But um, if you look in the wild at what these crows do, they have these incredible tool-making abilities. So in the wild, in New Caledonia, what they do is they take pandanus palm leaves. These are a particular kind of palm. They strip off the leaves from the bottom, leaving little barbed hooks. They nibble the end of the palm to a sharp point. Then with their beaks, they take the thick end. They find it hole full of termites. They stick the tool into the termite hole. They agitate it and stir it around, and then they pull out essentially a termite shish kebab, and that's dinner. Um, uh, so this is an incredibly sophisticated thing to do, and if you watch the uh, crows in that two years when they're fledgling, what they're doing is messing this up. So what they do is they'll pull the barbs off on the top instead of on the bottom, and they'll try putting the thick end in instead of the thin end, and they fail. But of course, as we all know, failing, failing, trying and failing is how you learn. As, as we say in, uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, fail further and fail faster. That's the recipe for success. And in the meantime, the moms are kind of sitting there and tapping their, tapping their feet and dropping termites into the baby's mouths as they're trying to figure out how to master these difficult, uh, how to master these difficult tools. So the picture seems to be that the advantage of a long childhood is that it gives you this period where you can learn all the things that you need to learn if you're a learning kind of animal, um, and then you can put them to use yourself as an adult. Um, so the crows, the chickens, are really good at adapting to a particular environment, and that's true about this kind of family of animals in general. Other animals like the crows, not very good at any one particular thing, but very good at adapting to new environments, whether it means understanding how to make tools from a pandanus palm leaf, or if you stick them in a lab, figuring out how to make tools with a piece of wire. Um, and of course, we human beings are way off the end of the spectrum. Um, we're sort of like super crows. Uh, 
we are, have larger brains, we rely more on learning, we're more flexible, we survive in more different kinds of environments, and our babies are dependent on us, are immature, for, as I said, for much longer than that of any other species. Uh, so the picture seems to be, one way I put it sometimes is, um, the picture seems to be that the children, childhood, are, is the, are, the children are the R&D division of the human species, and we're production and marketing. So they get this protected period when they don't actually have to do anything very much. We're taking care of them. Um, all they have to do is learn. All they have to do is explore. And the disadvantage of this learning strategy is that you don't want to actually be figuring out how to deal with a mastodon, for example, while the mastodon is actually charging at you. You want to have kind of solved that part already um, before you actually are facing that charging mastodon. And this division of labor between a period in childhood where you can just do R&D, you can just explore, and then this later period seems to be evolution's solution for that. I should mention I was giving this uh, stump speech the other day on the radio in, uh, in public radio in, uh, in San Francisco, and my adorable four-year-old grandson, Augie, was listening to me on the radio and was very excited that Grandma was actually on the radio in the car when he was going to school. And even more excited because Grandma was talking about children and talking about Augie. Uh, until I got to this part and he said, I would know how to deal with a mastodon. I would use a stick. <laughs> um, so with the exception of Augie, most children, most four-year-olds would not know how to deal with a mastodon. Uh, Okay, so this picture comes by definition, by necessity, with an extra investment of caregiving. So it comes with caregivers who need to take care of the children in this period where they're learning and exploring and finding out about the world. Um, and that is exactly what seems to happen. So as I mentioned, this isn't just this relationship doesn't just hold for birds and us and mammals. It also holds for these marsupials. Um, these are the animals that live in pouches in Australia. And for instance, if you compare these two different species, this is the world's cutest animal in every dimension, including its name. This is a quokka. Um, and baby quokkas, so there's a mommy quokka and the daddy quokka and the baby quokka. And uh, the quokkas have only one baby at a time. The baby stays in the pouch for a really long time, as long as a year. And the mother and the father and some of the other uh, adults as well are all involved in taking care of the baby. On the other hand, this is a Virginia opossum. And I suspect that uh, for most, um, most of us often feel more like the Virginia opossum in that picture than we do like the quokka. We all need more backlighting in our lives, I think, as parents. Um, as you can see, the opossums have seven or eight babies at once. The mom's the only one who takes care of them, and the babies are on their way again within a couple of months. And although the quokka and the opossum are the same size, the quokka's brains are twice as big as the opossum's brains. So again, you see this relationship between the period of immaturity of the babies, but also the, what biologists call parental investment. How many adults are involved and invested in taking care of each baby. And once again, we're on the far end of the distribution on these measures. We generally only have one baby at a time. And as we'll see, we adapted to have lots of people involved in caregiving for those babies. 
So with our very long period of immaturity, we have developed what I think of as the triple threat of uh, parental investment. So if you compare us to our closest primate relatives, for example, um, we do what biologists call pair bond, which means that fathers as well as mothers are involved in caring for babies. And fathers and mothers develop close, affectionate relationships uh, together. Now, of course, we take this so much for granted that what you may be thinking is, yeah, right, not always. Um, but the fact that fathers are engaged and involved with mothers and take care of babies at all is actually extremely unusual in the animal kingdom. So there's only about 5% of mammals that engage in pair bonding at all. And our closest primate relatives don't. Um, so it's very distinctive that we have this history. We actually have uh, pair bonding between um, males and females and joint raising, of, uh, joint raising of babies. And there's actually evidence, biological evidence, that pair bonding was something that evolved at the same time quite quickly as we were evolving from our common ancestor with chimps to be, uh, to be human beings. Um, you can actually measure finger length, for instance, in fossils, and it turns out that relative finger length indicates how much testosterone, how high testosterone levels are, and testosterone levels are correlated with pair bonding. So uh, you may not want to emphasize this uh, too much, but um, <laughs> pair bonded, nice, monogamous, good father have lower levels of testosterone and smaller testicles. And we have good evidence that that was something that distinguishes us from our closest primate relatives. Um, a second part of the triple threat is what the great uh, anthropologist Sarah Hardy calls alloparents. That means people who are not actually biologically related to babies who nevertheless are involved in caring for those babies. And once again, if you compare us to our closest primate relatives, um, for chimps, for example, essentially the biological mother takes care of the baby until the baby's weaned and old enough to pretty much take care of, uh, of himself. Um, if you look even in forager cultures, many people, including people who aren't even directly biologically related to the baby, love babies, are attracted to babies, take care of babies. Uh, there's a wonderful recent study that looked at how many, uh, how many people breastfeed the average baby in these forager societies, and the babies are breastfed by four or five different women in the course of a week. Um, so everybody kind of pitches in in terms of taking care of babies. And this also has the advantage that in the course of being an owl parent, you learn how to take care of babies. So often it's sort of the equivalent of a, a teenage babysitter that young, uh, young people are involved. Older siblings are an incredibly crucial support of caregiving in, in most cultures. And parenthetically, I think part of the reason why parenting began to emerge at the end of the 20th century was because really for the first time in human history, uh, we weren't learning about caregiving by taking care of our younger sibs, by taking care of little cousins, by watching how other people around us took care of children. For the first time in history, you had people who were, say, 30 or 40 years old who'd spent 20 years working and going to school and had never actually taken care of a baby. Suddenly they have a baby themselves, and they think, oh, this must be like working and going to school. This, when, I, when I have a new job, I read the job manual, and if only I read the parenting manual, I'll be able to, um, I'll be able to figure out how to solve this uh, task of taking care of the baby. So alloparents are another uh, part of the triple threat. And then my favorite 
part of the triple threat, um, grandmothers. If you look very carefully behind those three beautiful children, you can see there's a grandmother lurking in the, uh, there's a grandmother lurking in the background. Um, and grandmothers are also uniquely human. So we're the only primate where women actually live past menopause. And that isn't just because we live longer in general. Again, if you look in forager cultures, women are also living into their 60s or 70s, living past uh, menopause. And if you look at chimps, even chimps who are very well taken care of, they're, um, they don't outlive their fertility. So by the time they're 40 or 50, they just kind of naturally die. So again, this is an evolutionary puzzle. You know, why do I exist? Um, from an evolutionary perspective, you might think I just outlived my welcome as a, um, as a human being. And the new work suggests that actually far from that being the case, grandmothers were actually crucial for human evolution because it was actually the contribution of the grandmothers that had enabled us to have these babies who were immature for such a long time, who were learning for such a long time. So uh, Kirsten Hawkes, again, a great anthropologist, has actually done these studies I mentioned before about who provides the calories in forager societies. And it turns out that it's grandmoms. They're the ones who are actually producing the food and, and keeping the, um, keeping, especially keeping the toddlers, the two- and three-year-olds, alive. Um, the moms are nursing the new baby, but those toddlers who are still so fragile are being taken care of by the, uh, by the grandmoms. Uh, so there's a lot of evidence that in this relatively brief period where we evolved, um, we evolved simultaneously this long period of dependence and this tremendous amount of parental investment from lots and lots and lots of different people, all engaged in taking care of the babies. Uh, and as I said, the picture seems to be that the reason for that was so that children could have this protected period where they could learn new things, and create new things, be imaginative, have new possibilities. And if you actually look at neuroscience, if you look at uh, babies' brains, um, at human brains, you see the same thing. So this is a, a slide that shows the development of connection synapses, the things that that lady in the New Yorker cartoon was on about, um, across development. And what you can see is that there's this early period when many, many, many new connections are being formed, when the brain is very much what neuroscientists call plastic, it's capable of taking all sorts of new unprecedented shapes and forms. And then there's this later period where the uh, connections that are made become stronger and uh, they uh, are more effective and more efficient. But then the connections that haven't been made get pruned, as neuroscientists say. They disappear. So you start out with a brain that's not very efficient or effective or good at getting out of the house in the morning to get to preschool at all, um, but is extremely good at learning and extremely good at creating new possibilities and new ideas and new ways of being in the world. And then you have this later brain that's very good at being doing things effectively, not very good at changing when circumstances change, not very good at learning how to do something new. And that trade-off goes with that extended period. So that extended period is this period when all of these new possibilities can happen, all this learning can take place without necessarily having to commit to taking care of yourself or, uh, or being able to, as it were, make an evolutionary living in that period. Um, 
why would this very distinctive why would this very distinctive pattern have evolved this very long childhood this very long period of plasticity and brain development well an interesting uh, piece that also comes out of the evolutionary background is that um, human beings evolved in a period of environmental variability so you know what happened so quickly to turn us from these primate chimp-like animals into human animals with our uniquely large brains and learning and capacity for culture. Well, the best theory that people have now is that it's because the climate changed. And it wasn't just that the climate got hotter or colder, it got much less predictable. So this shows you the difference between the warm and cold periods during the period when human beings were evolving. And what you can see is it's not so much that it got warmer or colder, it got very unpredictable, the differences uh, got to be much greater. And the idea is that when you're living in a situation where there's lots of environmental vari variability, where you can't predict what's going to happen next, this strategy of relying on a lot of learning, having lots of possibilities, being able to do lots of new things, that's a really good strategy to use. That's a much better strategy than just being like the chickens and just being very good at doing one thing at a time. And for human beings, in addition to evolving in this environment of environmental variability, we developed two other things. We're nomadic, and we were nomadic from the time that we developed, and that makes us different from our closest primate relatives. We were always, from the beginning, spreading out over the entire globe. And that meant that the environments we faced were going to be new and unexpected and variable. And we had culture, which meant that we were actually changing our environment. Every generation was modifying the environment, making it different from the previous generation. And that also meant that our environments were even more variable and unpredictable. So now humans are causing climate change. Um, in the past, climate change caused humans. Um, and we're really creatures that evolved to deal with the unknown unknowns. That's, that's our, our forte. Is, that's our evolutionary niche, is the unknown unknowns. Uh, now, again, if that's the kind of general picture of how we evolved, this is sort of the first half of the science in the book, is this evolutionary piece, we might expect to see really powerful learning mechanisms in place, even in very young children. And in fact, we do. Um, but part of the parenting picture is a picture that sees uh, development as being very much like the kind of teaching and learning that goes on in school. So when, as a scientist, you say children are learning more in the first five years than they ever will learn again, the first picture that comes to people's mind is, oh, they should be in school, because that's the way that you learn. You have a teacher, and it's very much like the carpenter parenting model, and they shape you to come out a particular way. In fact, in the kind of work that we've been doing in my lab and other labs, what we've discovered is that children don't need to be taught. They've got incredibly sensitive, powerful learning mechanisms in place. And the way those learning mechanisms work, I'm going to talk about two of them just in the talk. There's a lot more in the book. Two of the most powerful are learning through l just looking, just watching what other people are doing, uh, what psychologists call observational learning, and play. And I'll give you some examples of both of those. And that's the way that children are learning from the adults around them. And I'll give you an, uh, an idea of what I mean by that. So... I think this general picture should be both reassuring and liberating for adults in the sense that what it really says is if you have the basics of 
loving and caring and being committed to a child, the child will do the rest when it comes to the learning part. Children are infinitely better at learning than we ever are at teaching. Um, and let me just give you a sample of just how incredibly, surprisingly powerful their learning abilities are. So I just said children learn, for example, they can take complicated patterns of statistics, just like a good scientist, and make inferences based on those complicated patterns. That might seem quite surprising for anyone who's tried to take a statistics class. Um, uh, and in fact, of course, if you explicitly ask children about statistics, they would not look very smart. Um, but we don't do that. What we do is give children these little, this little machine, the Blicket detector. It's a little machine that lights up and plays music when you put different things on it. And the children see different kinds of pretty complicated patterns of relationship between the blocks and the machine, and then they have to figure out how to make the machine play music. And with this very simple device, we can show that even the youngest children are doing complicated statistical analyses, working out probabilistic inferences, being as smart as the best machine learning programs that the guys over in, uh, in Amazon or Microsoft or Google are, and often, in fact, the same kinds of computations. So let me give you an example of this. You can actually be, this is my graduate student, Chris Lucas, who, of course, did all the work. Um, you can actually be a subject in this experiment. Um, here's a Blicket detector. Here's three blocks on the Blicket detector, D, E, and F. And you see D go on at three times, nothing happens. E goes on, nothing happens. D and F together go on twice, and the machine lights up and plays music. And the question for you is, uh, is D a blicket? No. Okay. Is E a blicket? How about F? Okay. So as I would expect, a town hall audience is as smart as Berkeley undergraduates, but perhaps not as smart as four-year-olds, because what if you saw these events too? Suppose you saw that A, B, and C go on and nothing happens, and the A and B combination and the B and C combination go on and nothing happens. But when you put A and C on the detector, the detector lights up. Now, you might change your mind about how that detector <coughs> works. Maybe it doesn't work with individual objects making it go. Maybe you need a combination of objects, of blocks, to make it go. And if you saw that sequence, and now I took you back to this original picture, you might think, oh, no, wait a minute. Maybe D is a blicket. It's just that this is the kind of blicket machine where you need two blickets to make it go. So you need D and F to make it go. So what we did was we did exactly the experiment I just did with you uh, with um, four-year-olds and Berkeley undergraduates, as I mentioned. Um, and we've since gone on and done this with 9-year-olds and 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds. That's actually interesting, and I can talk about it in the questions. So we either gave children and adults a sequence that suggested that individual blocks made it go, the sort of first obvious thing that everybody thinks about as a way that a blicket machine would work, or we gave them information that said that this much less likely, more unusual hypothesis about the combination of blocks and then we gave them this test sequence, and we saw how often they said that D was a blicket. We also asked them to actually put the blickets on the, um, on the machine, um, and we saw what they did. And here's an example of a little girl. I get for us to figure out which of these are blickets. So let's call this one triangle, okay? What should we call this one? Square. Square. And what should we call this one? Ball. Ball. Sounds good. Okay, so let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that. 
machine did not turn on. Let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine again, okay? Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when you put triangle on the machine one more time, okay? Let's see. Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when we put square on the machine, okay? Look at that. The machine did not turn on. Okay, now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. Look at that. The machine turned on. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle, square, and ball all on the machine together. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that. The machine turned on. Okay. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. Are you ready? Let's see. Look. The machine turned on. So Scarlett, do you think that triangle is a blicket or not a blicket? A blicket. And do you think that square is a blicket or not a blicket? No. No. And do you think that ball is a blicket or not a blicket? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Scarlett, which of these should we use to make my machine turn on? Those two? Yeah. Okay, so Part of the reason for watching, showing this is as a developmental psychologist, you're morally obligated to show cute children in videos. But there's another reason, which is if you are like most audiences, including me, each individual one of you was sitting there thinking, am I the stupid one? What was it? Was it the ball was going on with the square and then it went off? Or was it when like all three of them are and then it didn't? Um, it's actually pretty hard to track all of this, even if you're a grown-up. I mean, even if you're me who's watched this video many, many times. Um, but you can see that little four-year-old is doing a really good job. She's paying attention. She's seeing what, what's going on, and she's getting it right. And what we discovered was when we did this experiment with four-year-olds and undergraduates, as just like this little girl, the four-year-olds got it right. So if it was the obvious solution, they got the obvious solution. And if it was the creative, unusual, unlikely solution, they got that too. When we did it with our Berkeley undergraduates, all they ever did was the obvious thing. <laughs> so they never got to the unlikely combination uh, scenario. And in this recent work we've been doing with adolescents, it seems like about 12 is when the rot sets in. That's about when you stop thinking of the unlikely things and start thinking of the obvious uh, things. And we've seen this pattern of the younger children being more exploratory, getting to unlikely, unusual uh, hypotheses. Now, in three different domains with very different problems, I won't be able to talk about them all today. But it seems to be a quite general pattern. You give people something obvious, grown-ups will be much better at learning it than the children. Give them something unusual, unlikely, not obvious, the children are better at learning it than the grown-ups. Now, how does this kind of wide exploratory learning um, interact with the kind of teaching that I was talking about before? Well, to show you that, here's another experiment showing just how good children are at learning just by looking. Um, this is an imitation experiment. We had this little machine. Uh, evidently, it's technically called a who's it. Um, and it can do different things. So the experimenter would squish the toy, squeeze the bulb, and pull the ring. And the machine would play music. Then she would do something different. She'd say, pull the handle, squeeze the bulb, pull
pull the ring and the machine would play music. And then sometimes she'd do things like pull the handle, turn it over and pull the ring and the machine wouldn't play music. Um, so from these different kinds of patterns, you could make different kinds of inferences if you were like a good machine learning program about how the machine actually worked and that could lead you to a creative solution to how to make the machine go. So for example, if you see that pattern that's in the middle, that BC condition, that's the one I was just showing you, you should conclude, oh, all I have to do is squeeze the bulb and pull the ring. I don't, what happens first doesn't really matter. That can vary, it doesn't make a, doesn't make a difference. And that's actually the rational uh, conclusion. So you can come to this more intelligent solution about how the machine works. So what we did was we showed this machine to a bunch of three-year-olds. And um, yeah, I've never played with it before. So you know what's funny about it? It plays music. But I don't know how to make it play music yet. So I thought that what we could do is we could try something and see if we can figure it out. Okay. You want to help me see if we can figure out what makes it go? All right. So that's gonna be your game. We'll see what makes my new toy play music. Hmm. Here, what should I try? All right. Well, what if? I squish it, and then I squeeze it here, and then I pull this ring. Oh! It's my music! Okay, so she goes ahead and does that ten more times. So again, as with the other, as with the other uh, sequence, that's a lot of keeping track of all the different things that are going on. Uh, but... The children, here's what the little boy does when now it's his turn to play music. Why don't you make it go? Why don't you make it go? Oh, so instead wow. of just imitating what she does, he makes this intelligent, creative solution to the problem. Um, except that you may have noticed that Daphne, who's my graduate student, who's now a professor at the University of Toronto, was very good at being clueless. I think it was because she was an MIT computer science student originally. She had, had a very good clueless manner. And she was pretty clueless. She said, here's my toy. I don't know how it works. Let's figure out how it works. When you do that, the children find the intelligent solution. We tried doing the experiment a little differently. This time she said, here's my toy. I'm going to show you how it works. That was the only difference. Everything else was the same. The children never found the intelligent solution. I could show you the graph with a zero at the bottom. All the children did was imitate what she had done, imitated one of the sequences that she produced. And we've seen this pattern where actually hearing someone do something explicitly pedagogical, really teach you in a kind of direct instruction way, quite rationally narrows the range of options that the children are likely to consider. And I'll give you one more example of this and then we'll finish up. Um, one of the other central ways that children learn is by learning through playing, just by going out in the world and trying things out, what we call getting into everything. Um, and a whole chapter in the book is about how children do that. And again, there's, even though intuitively I think we felt as if this was something that children did, it's only recently that we've really been getting a lot of good science that supports the idea that children learn through play. And here's an example of one of these studies. This is by Elizabeth Bonowitz and... Uh, and Laura Schultz. And what they did was they showed children this toy that could do four different interesting things. It could squeak, light could go on, a mirror could go on, and music could play. Um, and again, they just introduced this toy just with a slight difference. In one group, the 
uh, experimenter said, huh, it's my toy. I don't know where this toy came from. It's really weird. And then she accidentally knocked the squeaker, and the squeaker squeaked. In the other condition, the experimenter said, look, here's my toy. I'm going to show you how it works. And she pressed the squeaker. Well, what happened was when she acted as if she didn't know how it worked, the children would just play with it, as you'd expect with a four-year-old. Then she just left the toy with the children and said, okay, I'm going away, just play. When she acted as if she didn't know how the toy worked, the children played, and they found out all the different things the toy could do. When she acted as if she was a teacher, when she squeaked the squeaker, they squeaked the squeaker, and then they squeaked the squeaker again, and then they squeaked the squeaker again, and then they squeaked the squeaker again, and they were much less likely to find all the other things that the toy could do. So once again, explicit pedagogy and teaching was actually sort of the opposite of what the natural evolved advantage of childhood learning is, which is this advantage of exploring many more different kinds of possibilities and options. Okay, so what's the moral of all this? The moral is that from an evolutionary point of view, parents are caregiving not so that they can shape their children, not so they can teach them specific things, but to give children this period, this time, this chance to explore. And if you want to get a really good example of what the environment is like in which this can happen, go to um, a great early childhood program, of which there are, there are many in Seattle, a Reggio Emilia program or a, the Child Study Center at um, UW. You can see some of these examples. And I think intuitively, preschool teachers have known how to be good parents for a really long time. The terrible worry that, um, that I think we're, we're experiencing now is that along with the rise of parenting has gone increasing pressure on the very institutions like early childhood education that gave the example of how to provide this rich uh, environment in which children could explore, they're under more and more pressure to look like the schools um, that we that that were that exactly are designed not to do those things. So there's more and more pressure on preschools to become more and more like schools, both from parents who bought into the parenting picture and think this is how they'll get their children to go to Harvard, and then from policymakers who want to be sure that their investments uh, play out. So. The, the thing that I want to leave you with is that from an evolutionary perspective, the whole point of children is exploration, innovation, novelty, possibility, diversity. Those are all the things that go with childhood. And any of you who has a three-year-old will kind of recognize that that's three-year-old life. Uh, a shorter way of describing all those things is mess. Um, what childhood is about is about being messy. That's what being variable and possible and changeable and diverse and resilient, that's all about mess. And the parenting picture, whether it's for parents or whether it's in, early, uh, in education, uh, is a picture that reduces mess, that's designed to get rid of mess. And the whole point of evolution is that we put in all this work, we're there to help our children make a mess. Uh, okay, so with that inspiring thought, <laughs> I'll stop and take questions. Hi. Hi. First of all, thank you. That was really great. Um, 
Do you think, and your book might address this, that the 12-year-olds are dropping off oh, of yeah. the creative solution, and then by the time they're undergraduates, completely <laughs> finished with it, because of all the conformity that we're forcing them into as children? In other words, if you could just l learn through play until you were 12 and you weren't trapped in a room and told to do homework, might they still have that creative side or is it more evolutionary and cognitive? Yeah, I think it's, we have some reason to think that it's partly the circumstances, but I think it's mostly biological. So um, a really interesting thing is that we have another one of these tasks that's a social task, not a physical task. This is about figuring out other people. And there, the 12 to 14-year-olds are the most flexible. So when it comes to figuring out other people, thinking about how their, other people work, the adolescents, and there's other evidence for neuroscience for this, are very flexible. They're very plastic. They're actually more so than the school-age children. They're more willing to consider new possibilities than the, the younger children are, um, which makes me think it's not so much about the context, but it's about kind of how adolescents are designed. So they're kind of designed to sort of say, okay, the physical world, I've got that. Let's just fix that. It's not, you know, it's not broke. Let's just leave it alone for the next... 50 years until we become Einstein or something. We're just going to leave that alone. But the social world, now that's a place where there's lots and lots of room for exploration when you're a teenager. So I think that's the story about what's going on with the adolescents. Um, I mean, I think there is, though, a broader question about whether this kind of narrowing of exploration early on is having an effect uh, later. And I think the you know, a whole other part of point about the book is that all the evidences, the small variations that people obsess about with parenting don't make much of a difference in the long run. And I think the main reason for rejecting the parenting model is it makes life miserable for parents and children while they're parents and children. Forget about what happens to them. Uh, forget about what happens to them in the long run. Um, but I think there is an argument that in the long run, some of the kinds of sense of fear and vulnerability that we see in, say, teenagers, particularly sort of vividly, might come from this, this, uh, the influence of this highly over-controlled parenting. We don't have good scientific data about that, but that at least seems sort of anecdotally uh, plausible. I was mentioning the potatoes before. I have to say there are some of my students, undergrads at Berkeley, where I feel like this is like a beautifully cultivated very large, very fragile potato. That's sort of the, 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 that is at least my anecdotal impression. Or a beautiful, gorgeous orchid that's constantly sitting there wondering whether someone left the door open and a cold breeze is going to come on them at any moment. Um, can you talk for a moment about the implications on maybe elementary school curriculum mm -hmm. in light of this research? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is a lot of the book is about preschoolers, which is where my own research has taken place. And I do think the kind of crisis in early childhood education is, is the most vivid kind of immediate problem we have because we're going to be making decisions about early childhood education in the next 30 years or so. And they're going to have a big effect on, on children. But um, there's an interesting kind of change about seven or eight, and I think it really is about seven or eight, not five or six, in the way that children understand and deal with the world and the way they learn. But the interesting thing is even the seven and eight-year-olds aren't learning the way that we typically think of learning happening in school. At about seven or eight, children seem to be designed to become apprentices, figuring out the skills that they're going to need in adult life and in the forager uh, communities, for instance. That's 
when children really start contributing to, to what's going on in the, in the community. And they really start genuinely learning to do things that they'll need to learn as adults. Um, in elementary school, we don't provide opportunities for this kind of wide-ranging interaction and, uh, and uh, play and exploration, typically. But we don't provide good examples of apprenticeship, either. And I think part of the reason, for instance, that urban kids like sports and music so much isn't so much that they think that that's the best you know, future career for them, but it's among the few places where you do learn through an apprenticeship kind of system, where you really genuinely get a skill and you learn something and someone who's knowledgeable helps you. And that seems to be a very powerful mode of learning for, say, seven and eight-year-olds. So I think the two things to say, one of them is in places like Finland, which have some of the best educational records in the world, um, early childhood education goes till seven. So there's a publicly supported system um, from the time babies are born until they're about seven, which is like our idea of a kindergarten, a garden for children where there's support of play. And then around seven, you actually start getting things that look more like uh, education. So I think that's one, one moral. And then the other moral is that we could have much more apprenticeship in our school age and middle school age uh, children rather than the sort of didactic teaching that we typically have. Yeah. So uh, I noticed on one of your graphs it looked like there was a lot of uh, accelerating growth and development in multiple ways um, from birth till five. Yeah. And um, I believe um, school teachers that teach under five aren't paid right. hardly anything relative to uh, preschool. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that there's so much uh, potential for children and yet a lot of them won't have the, what, $15,000 yeah, per that's year? Right. Uh, what do you prescribe as yeah. a solution for our communities and how we should Yeah, well, one act. of the things I say in the book is, you know, we're in a post-industrial kind of society, and we treat everything as if it's either consumption or production. And from that perspective, uh, caring for children is either an incredibly expensive luxury or an incredibly badly paid job. Um, and that's pretty much the way we treat it. And what we don't have is a way of supporting caring for children the way that we did for most of human evolution. So if you look in a forager society, a tremendous amount of the goods, you know, the GDP of a, a forager society goes to caregiving. It goes to taking care of those children. Now, we're not going to go back to being hunter-gatherers. So the question is, what could we do to give children the kind of framework for learning that seems to be the really, this really powerful, supportive um, framework? So how could we have institutions now that would support parents and would provide the sort of equivalent of that network of alloparents and extended families that seem to have been evolved to, to uh, uh, take care of children. You know, one of the things I say when people ask me what young children need, I think they need mud, livestock, and relatives. Those are the three <laughs> crucial things for childhood learning. And our children don't get very much mud, livestock, and relatives. You know, they don't get much of a chance to out explore the physical world and be in the biological world and have a range of people in the psychological world that they can explore. But again, a great early childhood program like a Reggio Emilia or a Child Study Center, that, you know, we can have sandboxes and guinea pigs and good preschool teachers who can sort of serve the same function. But to do that, we just have to sit down and say that we're going to invest in caregiving and that 
involves a whole range of policies from having maternal and paternal leave to having good pay for preschool teachers to just sort of assuming that that as most of the rest of the world uh, does that we we would do that so I don't think it's just training preschool teachers that if somehow we could just make them be more like school age teachers that would be the point but it means providing resources for everybody who's involved in caring for young children and recognizing that that's valuable in its own right yeah, well, I mean, that certainly is oh, that certainly is one important way that that would be one element in a bigger picture. So, I think again, you know, I was just came back from a trip to uh, my book tour in Europe, in uh, in Scotland, and England, and Ireland. And it's sort of amazing if you go and talk to people. I remember talking to someone who was from Norway, and I said, "Well, of course, you have publicly funded preschool." And he said, "No, no, no, we don't. We just." Uh, we have a little bit of public support, but it's still mostly parents who are paying for it. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, our preschool doesn't start till two and a half or three. Um, before then, the parents are really responsible. And I said, no, 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 no. You're... And I said, and you have, you know, you have leave, you know, for parents. And he said, well, you have leave for parents, too. And I said, no, it's unpaid leave. He said, well, that can't be. No, you're wrong. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense, right? I mean, what sense would it make to give people leave if you didn't pay for it? That's crazy. So, so we do have models for how to do this in other, in other communities, and we just have to figure out the political will to make it happen in, uh, in ours. And I'm not totally pessimistic. I mean, I think the worry is for us as scientists, you know, 15 years ago when I wrote my first book, we, that started because there was a White House conference about learning in the brain. And the message from the science has gotten through about how much learning is happening early on. The trouble is that instead of taking that and saying, well, we need to support caregivers, we need to provide resources for caregivers, the message has been we need to push school younger and younger and younger, which is exactly the opposite of the message that actually comes from the science. And I you know, give talks to preschool educators all the time. And this is not an exaggeration. I mean, they really are taking the pretend corners out of the preschools and putting in reading drills instead for three and three and four-year-old children. So, uh, and parents are hearing that it's important in those first five years and instead of bringing their children along to the grocery stores and having them around cooking and watching what they're doing, they're sitting there and doing flashcards and, and reading drills with them. So that's, a, that's been an unfortunate side effect. But I'm hoping, I think there's starting to be a reaction and the science certainly would support a, a really different picture. But that's a job for the policymakers. Yeah? So basically what you just said is um, what I am seeing in the four different districts I'm involved in, uh -huh. with, mainly with kindergarten teachers. And um, so could you kind of say that again? And I'm very concerned about the direct instruction. I mean, this is not about my talking, yeah. but you're talking. But could you kind of say it again and... Do some inciting to um, <laughs> inciting to converse with each other about what parents really want, what's really best for children. Yeah. Would you kind of repeat that to incite some? Yeah. I mean, I think when I when you talk to preschool teachers again, intuitively, they kind of get it. I mean, they they've seen kids playing and they understand about kids playing. They understand that uh, a nice slogan that I think. It could be a summary of all the sciences. The environment is the curriculum. That's, that's 
That's kind of the history of human evolution, is the environment, is the curriculum. That's the significance of that slide I showed about we evolved to deal with varying environments, and we're really good at picking out the structure of our, uh, our environment. Um, but they're facing parents who have bought into, not bought into, that sounds more intentional than it is, they're facing parents who've been kind of inundated with the idea that there's a whole bunch of special things that they need to do to make their children smart so their children will succeed and do well. And as I say, they're also facing policymakers who want accountability. So they're facing policymakers who want to demonstrate that their investment in things like early childhood is right. And there's a really interesting paradox that kind of runs through this whole story and runs through the whole book, which is in order to the things that children are so good at, myths, imagination, novelty, innovation, creativity, those are all things that are incredibly hard to measure. So by definition, if you want someone to be able to do one thing in particular, it, getting them to play around is not the best way of doing it. You're much better off actually teaching them to do that one thing in particular. Um, but if you want someone to be able to think of something new, that's not the best way of doing it. As those experiments show, that's exactly discouraging it. And of course, the culture that we live in, the environment we live in now, innovation and novelty and creative, creativity are even more important. But of course, they're also exactly for that very reason, the hardest things to assess. So how do you assess whether someone can think of something that nobody's ever thought of before? Um, right? That's a really difficult, that's a really difficult job. And even if you're thinking about um, you know, some of the examples I gave there, I, it's unlikely that on a test you would say, okay, I want you to give me the most unlikely answer to this problem, the one that you wouldn't think of first that's not the obvious one, that isn't even the one that's most likely to be true. That's a really, that's a really hard call. And I think the, the demand for accountability is, you know, and no one could argue with that, but it's had, this, it's had this really unfortunate effect. And as I say, I think the pendulum's starting to, to swing back as parents are starting to appreciate this, but... In the meantime, recess is disappearing, pretend corners are disappearing, five-year-olds are, um, are having to do reading drills, and don't get me started on this, three-year-olds are getting diagnosed with ADD if they, if they don't um, look like the kinds of kids that you'd expect in a classroom. Um, you sort of touched on it a little bit, but you had talked about some aspects of parenting that um, might lead to fragile potatoes yeah. <laughs> um, or just not be very helpful at all. And I was wondering if you could maybe give some examples. Um, I have a five-month-old, and I might be at risk of being an overparenter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of funny. It's been a, there's been a, a, a dilemma with, my, with this book as I've been going around and talking to people and doing interviews and so forth. Like the, the kind of canonical interview that I do with the press is the journalist says, oh, I get it. The point is that there isn't any recipe, there isn't anything specific that you can do that will guarantee that your child comes out a particular way as an adult. Uh, that seems absolutely right to me. Now, just one last thing for our listeners. Um, what advice would you give our listeners about what they should do to make sure that your ch their child is happy and successful when they're an adult? Um, so I don't think there's any particular, and I, this is not being disingenuous, I genuinely think that what the science tells us is that each child is like a brand new evolutionary experiment on the face of the earth. They're all completely different from every other child that's ever existed. And if you put that together with the parent that they happen to get stuck with, who's also unlike anybody else on the earth, the chances that you're going to have a 
an answer to or a strategy or recipe are pretty small to begin with. And, and again, it's exactly that diversity, that unpredictability that's so distinctively human that's been our, uh, that's been our advantage. So I think the, the answer is, you know, you, you trust your intuition, just muddle through and hope for the best, which is sort of what human parents have been doing for, uh, have been doing for most of our history. But I think the general picture is worrying less, chilling out more, enjoying the moment more, not always being anxious about what the long-term consequences are going to be, that that's a, a strategy that seems to be effective. I mean, if you wanted a little more... When I wrote this um, piece for the Wall Street Journal, my editor said, oh, come on, you're going to have to tell them something that they should do, right? There has to be something that we... Some advice you can give parents. And I do think this is right, that we have a lot of evidence that unconditional commitment and love, which comes so naturally, is something that children need to be able to thrive. All that exploration depends on those mommy and daddy quokkas being there uh, and mother crows being there to drop the termites in, being committed to taking care of that individual uh, child. And of course, you have to do that even though the children are all different, you're different, you have no idea what that child is going to be like to begin with. You have that unconditional commitment to that individual specific child, more or less no matter how they're going to turn out. Um, and a second piece is that you pass on the values that are important to you, to your child. And everybody has different values. Everybody has different things that they think are important. I'm not at all saying that you leave the child alone. The whole cultural basis of human culture is that we pass on our knowledge and our values to our children. And then you know what? Our children take that knowledge and values and they tear it all up and they give you a remix and do something that's completely different from the thing that you passed on to them. And again, that's good. That's part of the... That's, uh, that's the idea. That's part of the point. And you make, try and make a safe, stable environment. And the reason why you do that is so that they can take risks and so they can have adventures and so they can do all the things that you told them not to do. And, uh, and they can go out in the world and try something and fail and come back again. And it's difficult to see your kids go out and try something and fail, but that's the thing that, you, that we're, designed, we're designed as human beings to do. Um, I feel like I'm way over my head because I have a 12-year-old here who is so <laughs> thirsty for um, psychology. I don't know where to go. He wants to be a psychiatrist, and he's... Uh, I'm like, I'm a really good person for you to be living with. <laughs> you could study me. No, but his, um, his question is, um, on the graph, it shows that at five, right. you know, it's going up. His question is... Is it ever too late, and why is it ever... His question to me was to ask, was, well, if it's too late, if we're so smart, right. we're so evolved, why is it too late? Can we right. recreate it, right. is his question. And then his second question is, why can't we learn math like we do sports? Yeah. Like, why can't we learn how to, how to do math like, like we do when we learn and, sports? Okay, so the second, second answer, first, I think when we actually really do learn how to do math, that's exactly how we learn it. It's how we do sports. So it's... You know, if you, I've given this example sometimes. If, if we taught, baseball, if we taught um, baseball the way we teach science in, in our educational system, here's what we would do. No one would ever get to play the game until they were in graduate school. So 
what would happen is for five years, you'd have people read to you about famous baseball games. And then in college, you could like throw the ball to second base over and over again. And maybe like as a senior, you could reproduce some great play in baseball history. But you wouldn't ever play the game until you were in graduate school. And that's essentially how we do science. Um, and that's how we do math. So you don't actually get to do math with an expert who really knows about math and is really doing things in math until you're a math uh, major in, in, high, in college. And in fact, in the case of math education in particular, I think most of the educational system is designed to persuade people as quickly as possible that it's impossible for them to do math. And you know, the more challenged you are, the longer it takes before the teachers persuade you that you can't actually do math. Um, so I, I think math, science, writing, uh, you know, writing is my other profession, and the way you learn how to write is you write and you have an editor, and the editor puts red lines all over what you write, and then you write again. That apprenticeship program, I think, is the best way to learn anything, and we should have many more elements of that uh, in, in our lives. Now, in terms of the adult, it is not hopeless. It's not like everything is gone by the time you get to be an adult. And there's some really interesting... Uh, work about how adults can put themselves back into that much wider state. Traveling, meditating, certain kinds of psychedelic drugs seem to have that effect, even physiologically. Now, you would not want a world run by three-year-olds or adults on acid most of the time, right? I mean, we would not want to be driving the streets with uh, three-year-olds behind the wheel. Um, and one of the things that I didn't get a chance to mention is in, in computer science, for example, they talk about this intrinsic tension, another one of these paradoxes between exploitation and exploration. So exploration is the thing I've been celebrating with children. But if you actually have to get something done, and again, any parent of a three-year-old who's tried to get to preschool will recognize this, then beautiful, wide exploration of what's that little thing that's on the floor and how does my hand fit into the jacket? That, that is not what you want when you actually need to get things done. So that trade-off, that pruning is a good thing. It's something that we need to be effective adults going out in the world and doing the things we do. But even for human adults, and some people talk about human adults being neotenous, we're more childlike than most other animals are we can go at times back into that mode. And one of the reasons why I love children so much and one of the things that I wish people would see as the, the thing that comes from being a parent as opposed to shaping your child for the future is that you can get to be in that state because you're with a three-year-old or a four-year-old who's in that state um, all the time. And maybe for social things, you can get to be with a 12-year-old who's thinking about all the new ways that the world could be and the way that social life could be organized. Uh, and that's really a great thing about just being with children. So being a, being a parent as opposed to parenting. And one of the things I say in the book is, you know, we don't wive our husbands and we don't child our parents and we don't even really friend our friends even on Facebook. We're in relationships. And one of the things that's striking about that relationship is it's incredibly responsible. It's very hard. We have to be planful and goal-directed. But then we get to be in this crazy four-year-old state at the same time. There's not very many other things in life that, that can do both those things at the same time. Yeah. So we have time for one more question. Okay, great. So you mentioned um, mud, livestock, analogies, <laughs> and you also mentioned maybe I should worry less about my seven-month-old and how she's going to be raised. But if I'm going to worry less, do you think I should worry about 
technology and screen time and all of the stuff that these animals and our um, my parents didn't have to worry about. Do you think my child can explore in front of a screen or in front of a computer just as much as she can in mud? Yeah. Um, well, I have a whole chapter about that in the book. And actually, I think the answer is yes. Um, there's a great deal of panic now about technology and how children are going to interact with technology and what will happen with technology. And we won't know empirically for another 20 years when all these, these children grow up. But if we look at the past, um, a part of this human evolutionary um, trick has always been that each generation has developed new technological tools different from the ones that their parents had. It's just that if it happens before you're born, you don't think of it as technology. So I was talking to someone who was talking about how they had a preschool, and they didn't have any technology in the preschool at all. They just had silk and wool and wooden, uh, and wooden desks and chairs and books. Well, all of those things were technologies from the perspective of the Pleistocene. Those are all things that someone had to think of that were really different from anything that anyone had ever had before. And it's rather striking that Socrates, for example, thought that books were a terrible idea. He has a whole thing about how if you read books, you're going to lose the ability to remember anything, and you're going to think that the books are authorities because you can't talk back to a book. And he's right about, he was right about both of those things. So my general feel, and you know, it's easy to find the quote about how the train was going to destroy civilization, and the telegraph was going to destroy civilization, and television was going to destroy civilization, and telephones were going to destroy civilization. And I actually think there's a reason for why you see this kind of funny thing, which is each adult generation panics about the effect technology is going to have on the next generation, and then the next, gener then the next generation forgets about all the technology and starts again, which is that we learn about new technologies with a very different brain when we're young and when we're old. So if you remember that, uh, that slide, there's a lot of evidence that if I'm trying to master something new as an adult, it demands a lot of attention and focus and time. It's, I can't multitask. I have to put a lot of energy in. So if I'm you know, trying to read my phone as I walk down the street, it's going to be a disaster. But if I'm learning that with the brain that I have as a child, that brain is designed to pick up all this new information, like the little girl with the machine, in an open way without that effort and, uh, and difficulty. So when I walk down the street and there are billboards and I read the billboards, it's not like I'm sitting there and saying, uh-oh, wait a minute, that's an, that shape, that's like an A shape, and I think that that means an A, and then if you put it together with that other shape, literally, and I can demonstrate this neurologically, I just do that automatically without any kind of overarching effort. So I think what always happens is, as adults, we're looking at how painful and distracting it is for us to deal with the internet, and we just assume that that's going to be true for our children as well. And our children, including you know, my grandchildren, are looking at us like, what do you mean? Why, why the fuss about this? Look, Grandma, this is the way the iPhone works. You, how come you can't figure out how to get Thomas the Tank Engine to show up? It's really, really simple if you're three years old. Um, so anyway, that's a... A short version. I do think there's more anxiety about that than is warranted. Now, again, talking about the values um, being passed on, I think it's really important to pass on the values to your children about what's important to you now, what your generation has discovered, what you care about, um, and knowing that your children will take that and do something that will go from there to do something different. Um, my own personal favorite example of this recently is my grandfather was a poor Jewish-Russian immigrant. 
and he started a little grocery and deli on the corner in Philadelphia. He never got past eighth grade. And then his son became a university professor, my father, and then my father's daughter became a university professor. And my son is opening up a little Jewish deli on a corner in, um, on a corner in Berkeley. Now it's a kind of hipster, artisanal, organic, um, um, sustainable, uh, you know, Hampshire College gender studies kind of uh, um, uh, little Jewish deli on the corner. But it, it's a little Jewish deli on the corner, and those values about how food is important and family is important and caring for other people are important in all these different versions got, get passed down. And you want to pass down that you love books or that you love music. And, and books and music haven't disappeared. Theater had, didn't disappear when books showed up. Um, music didn't disappear when recording showed up. And I'm pretty confident that books are going to continue even after we have, uh, even after we have screens. Maybe on that optimistic note, um, uh, we can finish up. And those things, those incredibly outmoded old forms of communication, a whole bunch of them are sitting over on the desk over there, and I'll use an extremely outmoded, my generation, ballpoint pen to uh, sign them for people who want them. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Alison Gopnik is a professor of psychology and philosophy at UC Berkeley, where she directs the Gopnik Cognitive Development Lab. Her new book is The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children. She spoke at Town Hall Seattle on October 3rd. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. Good night.